This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You are listening to iFanboy's Talk Explode with Judd Winnick. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy, and I'm here with Judd Winnick. Hello, sir. How are you? Thanks I'm, for having me on. I'm very glad to have you. I've been thinking, 
it would be interesting to talk to you for a very long time. And I and it, it never happened, and, and now it is, and I'm quite pleased about that. Well, me too. Why, why so, sir? You seem to, it, it almost sounds like you have a laundry list of reasons you want to talk to me. I like to talk to creators that uh, I think will be interesting to talk to. And I think, okay. I think that you, with quite a varied career uh, and, and backstory, will be pretty interesting to talk to. Well, thank you. Well, I mean, you I, I mostly tag myself as someone who's, you know, made his living by making money by making things up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much the blanket on it. I mean, you know, not exactly the Renaissance man, if you think about it. Like, I've done cartooning over here and more cartooning over there. Sometimes I've just written cartoons. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, but, that, that leads me to sort of the question where this is sort of the, an all-encompassing sort of thing is, you know, if you look at where you have ended up and, and what you were doing and what you have done, like, did you ever think it would go this well? And do you think, uh, do you think it's gone well? You must, I, I assume you're very happy with this. I am. I mean, I'm, I'm currently extremely happy. Yeah. I think, uh, for me, I really went full circle. It took me a while to sort of get back to where I started and to sort of get back to what I always really wanted to do. I, I, you know, jumping into the middle, uh, I sort of lost my way for a while. Not, not like I ran off and started, you know, I don't know, you know, hosting dating shows or shit like that. I, uh, but I always wanted to be a cartoonist. I always wanted to write and draw my own stories. And the, the first thing I always wanted to do was to do comic strips and comic strips gave way to longer form stories. But somewhere along the way I began writing more, which was awesome and a lot of fun. Um, and writing superhero stories for 11 years was terrific. It never got, it never got to be a grind, um, or anything like that. And then did TV and all these things, but it, it all kind of brought it back to all these different things. My 10,000 hours of doing all these other things of making up stories, I think really prepared me to get back to what I wanted to do, which is write and draw my own things. Um, it just, it was really, it was a lot of serendipity that brought me back to spending most of my days making things up and sitting at a, a drafting table drawing. Is that, is that where you're the most comfortable? Yeah. Just come, comfortable is the wrong word. I think yeah. happy. I think honest to God is just really just, just happy. I do. Um, I, I, I'm very present and have those, those days where I'm, I'm sitting there and you know, I live like a 10 year old. I make things up. I draw them while half watching, you know, reruns of mash which is what I did when I was 10. So, you know, and, and now I, you know, now I make a really nice living doing it and lots of people read it and I'm making children happy. Everybody should have this life. That's a really good one. It's like, what do you do? I make kids happy. That's enough. That, that's really cool. So when you were a kid, did you, yeah. I mean, were you, a, were you a comic strip kid or a comic book kid or a bit of both? Oh, definitely both. I mean, it was just, it wasn't, it was never one or the other. Uh, I mean, weren't, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, weren't we all comic strip kids? That's what you did. Yeah. You know, if, if you liked, if you liked cartoons at all, every single day, like water coming out of the tap, the newspaper showed up for those kids playing at home. We used to have these things called newspapers, which were like iPads made of paper. And, uh, instead of, you know, having things come via the web, human beings used to deliver them every day <laughs> to our to our front doors and mail and i was, and I was one of those humans were you did you deliver newspapers yes i that? did oh good for you you were you were you were a newsie yeah check you out 
So did you also wear a newsboy cap and sometimes dance? I don't think I did either of those things, and certainly not in a coordinated, you know, method with others. But you should have, you know, you missed the opportunity. I, I did go on to play Batman in a series of feature films, though. <laughs> you're gonna have to look that up if you're at home. I'm not explaining that one to you. If if you have to look that up, I can't imagine they're listening. Don't you think? <laughs> I never know. There's a lot of young people. True, true. Like who the hell is he talking about? Newsies? What is that? Oh, I see now. Okay. Um, yeah, newspapers. Yeah. So, yeah, growing up, um, yeah, I think we all did. You know, newspapers came to the house every day, and it was like this gift of two to three pages of comic strips. You know, uh, many of them were really great. Some of them were garbage, but we re- used to read all of them. You know, whether it um, – I'll put down Brenda Starr. I used to read Brenda Starr. I didn't like it or particularly understand it, but I read it, you know, along with B.C. and Garfield and, and you know, Doonesbury and – um, and later Bloom County, which, you know, that, that changed my life. But that was that, yeah. the, was that the sort of touchstone one for you? Yes. The order in which comic strips sort of entered my existence was when I was like, you know, when I was eight, you know, Garfield started appearing in the paper and I thought it was the funniest thing in the whole world. And my parents bought me the collections. I read them over and over and over again. And it was hysterical. And uh, as a kid, I drew many a ripoff comic strips like i think it was called marvin which was literally that was the name of the strip marvin who was a fat cat not to be confused with garfield um and then later uh yeah then then bloom county came out and um that was consciously it was just really something just just knocked me right over it was really well drawn it was incredibly funny and just hit the right groove for me and that was that's what i wanted to do and when I was in college and finally doing my own comic strip, um, I was ripping off uh, Bloom County for a long time until I, you know, sort of sort of found my voice. Um, but while all that was going on, I was always reading comic books. Always. It was just never, ever part of the plan. I was never, ever thinking that I would ever write comic books, you know, or much or much more, even draw them. Um, I just I knew I didn't have that, those kinds of chops, even as a you know, even as a kid. Um, I just knew, I mean, there were, there were friends of mine who could draw like that. You know, there was, there was, there was guys I was in like junior high school and high school with who I knew, yeah, like they could really do great anatomy and they can draw superheroes. And that was never, I wanted to, but it was never my thing. I was always kind of a doodler. I knew my stuff was always closer to like the peanuts in Bloom County. I did like cartoony cartoons, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but no. And there was no crossover then. Like now it feels like there's definitely... There's artistic cross over at the time, but it was like, you have to draw like that or like this. There's no, yeah. Scotty Young should yeah, have existed. Well, things then. have changed. But, you know. They really have. And now you can, you can, um, I mean, people could probably, you know, people do. They draw things in a very, very cartoony style, which are, and the stories are just as serious as a heart attack. The fact that they, you know, have that sort of look and feel of comic strip cartoons uh, doesn't really matter. We're just, we're different now. There's just more. There's just more out there. Um that said, there's yeah. very, you know, even with, you know, with the big two, they don't really have um, any kind of straight up very, very serious. I mean, when they let when Scotty Young's doing stuff, Scotty does covers. And if he's going to do a long form book, um, it's going to be with lots of humor, you know, and it's going to be Rocket Raccoon. Um, yeah. I mean, to be honest, with you, I don't think I don't think Scotty wants to do um, like a really serious book. I don't think he wants to like draw Spider Kid and um you know, make it 
you know, as serious as a heart attack. I think he enjoys the humor of it or going both ways. Um, but that said, those two, those two, you know, streams never like crossed for me in any kind of way, probably until I did Barry Ween until I really thought about, um, I, you know, I did a graphic novel. I did, I did Pedro and me and apart, you know, and <laughs> steer me in any direction you want if I'm jumping around way too much. Cause I feel like I'm just, we're just having a conversation. Um, okay. Um, yeah, we are. That's so uh, Barry Ween was born out of after spending two and a half years doing a memoir and kind of learning how to do a comic book by just doing it, you know, and doing a 200 some odd page memoir um, about, you know, about Pedro Zamora and my life and his life and me and Pam and the real world. I just wanted to do something that I didn't have to. I mean, work too hard is the wrong word. I just want to do something that was fun stupid i didn't have to draw any of my friends i didn't have to draw myself <laughs> you know just just sort of let loose and i had never done that before not not as a comic book but i, I felt that uh, after doing you know a 200 page comic book like no i can work in this medium i can do this i can do it like this and i don't care if anyone buys it i don't care if it's embarrassing my parents because barry says fuck every third word and talks about his dick i just i wanted to do this and have some fun and the reaction was so delightful. It wasn't like it was a bestseller or anything, but, um, you know, you know, looking back now, it was, it was, it is, and still one of the more positive responses I've, I've, I've had in my career. People still loved it. And it was never met with a lot of criticism. It was just fun. Well, yeah, I I mean, you know what? I'm going to, I want to come back to that because, but I, I want to get there first, I guess you now. So did you go to school like with the intent of being a cartoonist? Was that, was this what I'm going to do? No, it was always my, I, I really, I really didn't have a second plan. I really didn't have an idea as far as, uh-huh. um, <laughs> I didn't have anything to fall back on. I, uh, I grew up on Long Island. I, uh, was going to go to, I was going to go to an art school, um, or a university that had a great art program. I made, the very conscious decision that I didn't want to, I, I just didn't want to uh, spend the rest of my life in New York. If um, the best art schools in the country are in Manhattan, and I knew if uh, I went to art school at uh, School of Visual Arts or Pratt or you know or what have you, I would I would never leave New York. That would be it. Um, so I chose consciously. I'm going to go to a big university where there's lots of different people and study art. And that's what I did with the hopes of, I hope I get to do a daily comic strip like, like my heroes, like Burke Breathitt and Gary Trudeau. And I did. My freshman year of, of college, um, I met the editor of the paper who just actually, <laughs> he actually asked me that. It was unsolicited. I tried to get in the paper. Didn't work. I was trying to do political cartoons for them. Didn't work. Um, I... Uh, um, was going there to see if I could do some spot illustration work for the newspaper and the editor of the paper, the editor in chief, his name is Adam Schrager and I'll for, never forget him. Adam actually asked me, like he said, yeah, he heard I was in the building and came over and said, listen, you're a cartoonist, right? And it's, it's like, I was, I, I heard you were in here and like, you slightly, would you think of maybe doing a daily comic strip for us? Like, you know, like five days a week or something. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I would. <laughs> It's pretty much all I want to do. Do I have to go to classes still? <laughs> What's funny is that you remember that that guy's name, yeah. and he was probably like twenty. He was a junior. He, seemed, he was in charge of like an adult. Yeah, you know, yes, yes, a whopping twenty years yeah. old. But uh, but he did. He changed my life. You know, <laughs> and I for the next four years, I did a comic strip every day, um, and that was that was exactly what I wanted to do. What was what was, was that again? I, I, yeah, it was called Nuts and Bolts, 
and um, and it, it, okay. it was just that. It was basically a strip about being in college. Do you, can you look at that stuff now? A lot of it is very good. A lot of it's really raw. A lot of it stinks. Um, you know, you know, the art is not where it ever wanted to be. But that's you know that that is the easiest place to improve. You can you know, you know, if you're not drawing better as you get older, you're not you're not trying hard enough. Um, but yeah, some of the jokes are okay. It's but but it is very cringeworthy for me, and very site specific. A lot of the stuff was about being at Michigan at that time. But that's what it was supposed to be. So yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then, uh, I guess I, I guess out of there, you you did the real world, and I'm sure you've gone over all that ad nauseum. But was that during college, or was that just after? No, that was that was just after. Actually, one thing kind of led to the other. I uh, um, I did my college comic strip. I got a development deal with the Universal Press Syndicate to um, get it in shape for syndication. Um, it was a year-long contract that they dropped me after about nine months. They didn't think it was working out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, much to my delight, as any 20-something would love to do, I had to move back in with my mom and dad um, because, like, the money ran out. And uh, I was sitting on my couch uh, in the real world, <laughs> watching Real World Los Angeles, and they ran an ad. And they had to, do you want to be on Real World 3 San Francisco? Write us a letter telling us why. And I, you know, stood up, examined myself for bed sores, and said, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would like to do that and get the hell out of here. Um, and then, yeah, and then I, I just tried out for the show. It took like six months uh, for the whole process. And uh, miraculously, I got on. I do mean miraculously. Well, I mean, I, and, and I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but like you would never get cast on that today. Yeah. No. 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 And, 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 I mean, which which really is to. I mean, this was this was me. You know, I'm a little younger than you, but like this was mm-hmm. me in, in in you know high school watching all that, and you know it was a different ball game then. You guys talked about things and were different people, and it changed at a certain point. It's, oh, kind yeah. of, it's kind of amazing because, you know, whatever reality TV is now to, compared to what it then is, is a whole other animal. Um, right. I don't know. That's, that's, that, that might have been my whole point with it. But I no, think about that the a truth lot. Is, the honest to God truth is, and I'm talking a little bit out of school, one of the producers told me, and this is, this is a long time ago, too, um, that, I don't know, like around the sixth or seventh season, no, maybe like the seventh season is clo- closer to eight, they they they. they it became too hard to even get an honest cast. Yeah. They said they just, they're just so full of it. They just, everyone coming in here, they just, you know, they're just, they know, we know they're lying to our faces, you know, like some six, one guy who, you know, look like he looks like a, you know, a high school quarterback slash model. And it's like, so you do what you're, you're a bartender in Los Angeles <laughs> and you have no other aspirations. You just want to be on the real world. Nothing else. Any other reason you want to be in the real world? Nope. I just, I just think it'll be fun, man. And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, so it's a long line of, you know, you know, want to be actors and people who just want to be reality TV people. Um, it just, you know, things changed, yeah. you know, when we were on the air, the only other reality TV show was cops. <laughs> <laughs> that was it for the kids playing at home. If you don't know cops, just Google cops and watch a little bit on YouTube. Is that not still airing? I just assume it's, it's, you know, eternal. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine anything about it would be remotely still legal if you think about it. Yeah, it's true. It was, it was police and and just so many so many landmines uh, <laughs> for people playing at home. This was this was a camera crew following around police officers when they would go and you know arrest people. So watch that and then go uh, Google troops. 
which was the one of the first and best scoops you'd find in YouTube's, which are someone was following around the stormtroopers. They're parroting cops, and they did it as stormtroopers. Man, do you remember that? I yeah. thought about that in years. That was, was and it took out. forever to download. Yeah, <laughs> like well, like if you could find it, it was like a big deal, and it, was, it, and it was like hours. And it was a minute it was long. I had dial-up still. Yeah. It was, probably, was it that old? Like, we got it, you know, had to get it off AOL. Yeah, and it was a little tiny, you know, like like 140 by 60 resolution. It was not, yeah. It's a, lo- yeah. a lot has changed is what we're getting at. Yes, what we're getting at, yes. <laughs> a couple old, old men talking about the days, yes. <laughs> so, um, I guess, like, coming out of that, which was, I mean, it was a life-changing experience for you, I assume. I mean, was that, yeah. like, how soon... Like, when did Pedro and me become a, a, a reality sort of in your mind as a thing that you were going to do then? Years later. Okay. Um, and it was, uh, um, I, sp- I spent a couple of years, well, after Pedro got sick, um, he was supposed to do, um, well, before he got sick, he was supposed to do kind of a lecture tour. He was going to go around and talk to about 10 or 15 colleges. And it was, it was basically booked and ready to go and it was supposed to happen. And then he got sick. And, what became something very simple and sort of Pedro feeling terrible about the idea of canceling on a number of the colleges is that he asked me like, you know, go, go do the talks, you know? Um, he said, cause he just, it was just basically, he felt like shit about canceling, like go do the talks, you know? And like, just, you know, give a lecture, tell them, you know, what it's like to know me and you know, what, how, you know, how one contracts HIV, just give them the do's and don'ts and do the talks. And to be honest, some of the places canceled. They didn't want me instead. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. But then I went and gave the lectures and, um, Peter got sicker. And, uh, when, and when he passed away, um, it seemed after, after giving a dozen lectures about him, get these, these talks about him, I really kind of felt the need to do something. You know, part of it was just a stress reaction. You know, what do you, what do you do? Um, and I really didn't want it. It we didn't want Pedro's story to end with him. The show had aired; people knew who we were. And I say we, I meant me and and at the time my girlfriend Pam, later my fiance, now my wife. Um, so we started lecturing. We would we would go around to colleges and high schools, and in some cases middle schools, and and talk about Pedro. And uh, I Pam, you know, eventually had to go back to medical school, and. Me, I kept doing it while doing like some spot illustration work and some cartoon work. And I did it for about two years until I just, I was pretty, I, I just could not do it anymore. And it wasn't about being burnt out. It wasn't about being tired. It wasn't really that. It was part of the talk was actually um, recounting what it was like to know Pedro mm-hmm. and literally what it was like for, to, to watch him die. And um, I'd never wanted to hedge away from telling that part of the story but it just got really, really hard to over and over and over again tell this story. And I never wanted it to be a time where it didn't have any meaning. I didn't, I didn't want to find a time where I was telling people about it and I was just saying words. And I was nowhere near there, but I knew, like, I, I've just got to stop. Yeah. It's, it's, I, just, I just have to stop doing this. And it meant this yeah, a couple of times a year I would go and give this talk and talk about Pedro here and there, not try to do it several times a month and go on the road and do it. So... Jump ahead a few years later, I'm doing the com. I'm doing a comic strip finally. It was called Frumpy the Clown, and I was doing. Uh, I was syndicated with Creators Syndicate, and it was about it was about twenty papers or something. I was just starting out, and I was doing okay. I wasn't doing great, and I was I was becoming a little bit disenchanted with it because it was a time when newspapers were having a really hard time, and comic strips in general were also having a hard time. They weren't buying a lot of new comic strips there's there's only a finite amount of real estate in newspapers 
And to get in a paper usually meant another strip had to be canceled or literally one of the cartoonists would have to pass away and stop doing the strip. It was it was openly talked about that mm-hmm. you know, so at some point, well, at some point this cartoon, he's really old, he might die, and then the strip won't go on, and then we'll have some more space. Um, it was bizarre and disgusting. While I was doing the strip, I uh, basically kind of hit upon the idea that I wanted to introduce a new character um, that, that was like Pedro. I was going to call him Uncle Peter, and uh, he was eventually going to come out as gay. Uh, maybe he would be HIV positive, and it would give me... You know, just that avenue to talk about these issues in, in a comic strip. I didn't know if they would let me do it or not let me do it, but I just I wanted to start doing it. And it kind of began with just this little sketch, which I still have, of, uh, you know, what I thought, like, Uncle Peter should look like. And it, looked, it pretty much just looked a lot like Pedro. And that's when it kind of hit me that, you know, I don't think I want to do this in the, as a comic strip. I think I just, I think I just want to tell his story. And that's when I started trying to do an illustrated version of... Um, the lecture, the talk I gave. And it kind of, it started out like a hybrid book, sort of, that like a lot of text and some drawings and a lot of text and some some sequential art. Until finally I just sort of gave over to it and like, well, let me let me just make the whole damn thing a comic book. Let me just do it. And um, it took like two and a half years. It took like two and a half years to just, just get like, you know, 200 some odd pages in pencil, um, like hand-lettered, that I would send out to publishers. And um, that was, um, I guess, around like 98 or so, like 1998. Um, so it was, um, yeah, about four years later. It was about four years after after the show. Um, so it took a little while. It took a little while. And I think it took me coming around to the idea that maybe comic strips wasn't what I should be doing. And it was after I really finished the final draft of the manuscript, the one I would send out, not finishing the book. I hadn't even got a, a publisher yet, but I really had decided then that I don't think I want to do a comic strip anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think for me, the writing's on the wall, both. Well, it really wasn't about the business. I was going to say that I could see the newspapers were in trouble, but I have to be honest, I don't think I was even thinking about that. I really just felt that uh, it's not, it wasn't really what I wanted to do anymore. I think I wanted to try and tell stories this way. That's that's another very big thing that I owe to Pedro is that I don't know if I ever would have been telling stories this way unless I tried to tell his story the first time. That was the very first time I ever thought about like doing sequential art. Yeah, I was I was thinking that that for a sort of first whack at a long form story in that style, like that's that's quite a project. I I think part of it is uh, being young and didn't know not, Yeah, just not any fear. You just learn by doing. Like what the hell? Just do it. Mm-hmm. You know what's? I mean, <laughs> there there was there there really was no worst thing that's going to happen. I was just going to go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, as you get older, you find more reticence about you know lots of things. But in this case, it was like no, no, I'll just go ahead and do it. Um, and when I was done, it's like no, I th- I think this looks pretty good. I think this reads pretty good. And um, you know, and I was proud of it. I was, I, I mean, what, what eventually happened is what I, exactly what I wanted to happen for it. I wanted there to be a record. I just wanted it to be down somewhere that, uh, and, and hopefully years later, um, whether or not, uh, young people got a chance to see the show, they might have someplace they could actually read his story. And, uh, and they do, I mean, it's still in print. And for the most part, it, um, it, it spends a lot of time in schools and health curriculums and, you know, it makes me very, very proud still. It really was one of those, for me, 
So one of the first examples of, I mean, I know that we'd been through 86 and all that it wrought, but it was, it was a different kind of comic to me. And I, I remember using it as a, to, you know, tell people you don't read comics, but you should read this, read this book. <laughs> I mean, I gave it to a lot of people. Um, I'm, I don't know if it was like the first, and I, and this is, I don't know if it was the first sort of comic book that made me cry, but I specifically remember reading it. And because I quote unquote knew you all from TV, like it, you know, that made it all the more real. So it was, it was, you know, I was more familiar with everybody in the book to begin with. And, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't, I haven't read it in a while, but it really never didn't feel like this guy doesn't know what he's doing thing at all. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's still a great example sort of of this is what a, a graphic novel. I try never to say graphic novel, but it, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's comics, but um, yeah. No. Now to to take it to the other way. So the, then the next thing that I saw out of you uh, was Barry Ween. Yeah. And, and I remember laughing my ass off at that. Yeah. In a in a, in a and I still think I wish there were more comics like this. <laughs> you know where there's a right. giant vagina on the wall i think that was one of the jokes <laughs> and it was like well i've never seen that happen but also like in a way that so you you can do dirty jokes and stuff but it didn't feel sleazy that i was reading it if that makes sense like it it didn't feel like it was the back of a hustler comic or something like that like oh it was comics that it's just funny and it was sort of imaginative so that must have been that must have been a sort of i mean I, you said you didn't want to do that kind of thing for a little while and switch over to a different kind of cartoon that must have just been fun to do it was a lot of fun to do. And I think I've had years to think about why, you know, I mean, guys like us sort of had a visceral reaction to it. And I think what it was is that Barry Ween was kind of like guys like us, the way we talk, the way we act. But there we there we were as children. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it was the attitude of like, you know, guys like us in our 20s who curse every other word who, you know, yeah, to talk about sex in sort of a desexualized way, <laughs> you know that that was the whole thing. Is that it didn't? Yeah, he cursed a lot, and he had a you know, and he had a, had a filthy mouth, but he didn't really have a filthy mind. This wasn't about getting laid, or it wasn't, uh, you know, and it wasn't by I didn't do it by design. I just had him talk the way that I actually talk in life, and um, you know, and and Jeremy kind of being like kind of a benign horn dog ten year old. Um, <laughs> You know, that nudity is is not like necessarily sexy in a turn on. It's kind of like funny and awesome. <laughs> That's the way he kind of views like, you know, boobs are awesome, you know, and don't even with, know why. Yeah, but they are. It's like, God, no, it's like, you know, it's um, and uh, I, it was a lot of it, it was a lot of fun. And also it was it, as big a learning experience as doing Pedro and me because it was it was supposed to be dumber than it was in the sense that. Like I, when I was writing it, I do remember I was writing it and realizing that it was just to be about Barry Ween and this kid who's going to blow things up and say fuck every third word. And then I just realized in writing it, like, oh, we kind of need someone to talk to. So let me give him a buddy who I just, you know, I randomly named like Jeremy and like he's going to be the one who he kind of talks to. And then having Jeremy show up, like it, it just immediately, it kind of clicked him. It just clicked that Jeremy thinks everything Barry does is pretty awesome. But <laughs> But he's not overly impressed with, like, you know, Barry. He's not enamored. He just thinks everything's so fucking great. <laughs> and, and there was a difference. It was like, there was a big difference between, like, you know, fawning over your genius friend who can do anything, but, you know, then routinely just thinking everything's, like, really, really cool. Um, and then it just, there was just this, this characterization happened, this friendship happened between these two characters. It really was a wonderful, happy accident. 
I didn't I didn't mean for it to happen, but the more I wrote them, the more interesting it got to have them actually care about each other. And for, and to sort of embrace the fact that being this smart actually is kind of problematic. And uh, it was it was really I didn't I didn't think I just did. And I got very lucky that um, I found out who I was as a storyteller just by doing it. I owe a lot just to that comic because um, you read the early you like read the early issues like they're they're a little bit sillier. But as we get into it more, you get into the characters a bit more as you should. It sort of helped just helped evolve. Um, and it was fun. It was really fun. Did you and know I what you do, were doing from a sort of cra- craft standpoint? Like, were you scripting stuff ahead of time, or were you just sort of making it up as you went? Uh, no, no, no. I would write it all out. Mm-hmm. I would literally write it all out in longhand. You know, not the drawings. I didn't have to do it per se, unless I had to make myself a note. But it was just in a notebook, mostly just writing out the dialogue. You know, writing mm-hmm. out the dialogue and a note to myself that you know. And a, I mean, I knew what the drawing was going to be because it was in my head, and they were reacting to it. And then I would just lay it out on like eight and a half by eleven paper, and that would be sort of my working script. Um, and then I drew it, and um, you know I shopped it around a little bit, and uh, I got I got some. I mean, everybody liked it, but I couldn't get like any real takers. I think I think Dark Horse was kind of interested in a while, but uh, in, in was interested in the, for it a while, but they really wanted me to get an inker. They really wanted me to you know have someone else ink over my stuff, mm-hmm. and I was. And it it wasn't like it wasn't like a breaking point or anything. It was just kind of a discussion, but uh, but Oni wanted to do it, and they didn't want that as any part of the discussion. Um, I mean, that was after like I just did it at Image. I did it myself at Image, and then you know, um, Oni was a little bit interested. Dark Horse was a little bit interested, and I just went with Oni because I just like these guys a whole lot. Um, you know, I'd worked with Bob Shrek on the first thing I ever published. I did a little short story that Bob published, but Bob was already off at DC. But Joe Nosmack and Jamie Rich were still running Oni. And they wanted to, like, you want to do it here? It's like, fuck yeah, I want to do it here. Let's do it. You know? And uh, it, was, it was a blast. How and, did you get to know the, the, the folks in comics? Like, where did you make that sort of transition into sort of like, you know, knowing people like Bob Shrek or knowing, you know, the guys at Oni? I owe it all to Bob Shrek himself and, and the real world. <laughs> so I don't know. If, I, I, I've told this story now and again, but I'll tell you. So I was at the San Diego Comic-Con like 95, 96, probably 96. I want to guess 96. Uh, I'd been, I, yeah, it was 96 because I was already doing Frumpy the Clown. And uh, I I'd made up some ash cans. Ash cans. There's <laughs> what you guys look up. Ash cans are eight and a half by 11 photocopies folded over and you got a staple in them and it makes a little mini comic and you call them ash cans. So I'd made a little ash cans of Frumpy the Clown that I was just going to give out to random people like, hey, what's up? Hey, Judgment of the World. Yeah, here. Here's Trump the Clown. Go call your local paper. Tell them to put it in there. Um, I didn't have a booth or anything. I was just, I was a fan. I was wandering around. Yeah. So Kevin Smith was at the con, and this is uh, before Oni Press launched. The first comic was going to be uh, uh, a Clerks comic that um, I think, I think the first one Matt Wagner was going to draw. Um, and uh, uh, so they had the comic there and I think they were selling it and they're all selling a script book. And, uh, so I was waiting online as before the, the line was only like incredibly long rather than ridiculous, uh, which it would be now. Um, right. and my hope was as was happening for the last two years since I'd left the real world, I would meet people who were famous and I admired both and, uh, say, Hey, and they would go, Oh shit, you're that guy from the real world. I go, yes, I am. And I, and I, I would get to have some kind of meaningful exchange with them because of that. 
um, rather than like, hey, I'm a fan. You don't know who I am. Um, uh, th- this whole website that I've been doing most of my adult life worked a lot like that. Okay, cool. Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it fun like that? Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> hurt. Yeah. They go. Oh, I fanboy. I know you guys. Yeah. Hey, what's going on? Oh, good. That's much easier for me. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, you know a little bit about me, you know, like, I'm just not regular people. I got a little <laughs> thing, man. I, just, I have this little thing, okay? So it makes me just not regular people. So I was, I was waiting online to have Kevin Smith. He, they were selling the, uh, the script. It was a script book of Clerks and Chasing Amy, uh, you know, in one. You can buy this, both scripts were in one, like, you know, uh, you know paperback book. Um, so I was hoping to, like, get the book. Say hey to Kevin. Kevin goes, oh, shit, you're driving the real world. And we could talk a little bit um, at the very least. So I'm online and there's Kevin. And he says, hey, and I hand him the book that I just bought. And uh, he, he says, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for bringing this up. He's like, you're welcome. He said, and nothing. I could tell nothing, not a thing. He said, uh, do you want me to describe it to anyone? So I you know, say, could you inscribe it to Judd and Pam? And he goes, yeah, okay, you bet. And he writes to Judd and Pam. Uh, I wonder who gets the book if you guys ever break up. Good luck, best Kevin Smith. <laughs> like, okay, funny joke. He has no idea who I am. Okay, that's it. So I'm, I step offline and I, uh, I, I look over and sitting, uh, which I later find out he was sitting with Diana Schutz, um, is Bob Shrek. And Bob Shrek is giving me the look. The look is, wait a minute, why do I know you? <laughs> <laughs> So I look at him, I, I give him the up nod, and he goes, and he points at me, and I walk over and go, hey, I'm Judd Winnick. He goes, yeah, I, said, I thought I recognized you. Oh, holy shit. How are you? And so Bob Shrek and I had a meaningful conversation, which actually went further because um, I'm a comics fan. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at the time, uh, fanboys and fangirls, at the time, a lot of people didn't know who editors were. <laughs> you, I mean, a lot of people. You had to actually be an avid reader and 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 someone who took a greater interest in comics more than usual. You know, aside from knowing who maybe Archie Goodwin was, um, you know, or Denny O'Neill, to actually know an editor was kind of a, a Bob was 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 uh, was was happily flattered that I knew who he was, where he worked, what he's done. You know, and I was actually asking him questions and listening to him tell stories to the point we're standing there for like forty minutes. And he says. I, I need to go eat. I have to grab lunch. You want to go eat? I go, let's go eat. So Shrek and I had lunch and kept talking about whatever. And then he was, then he just, at, at one point he said, like, we're doing this book called the Oni double special, um, double feature, um, where we have like two short stories in each book. And, uh, we usually have like a one shot comic book on the inside cover. Would you want to do something like that? It's like, yeah, <laughs> of course I'd want to do something like that. So I, the first thing I got published in comic books was a one pager in Oni double feature. I remember then, that. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was like nuts and bolts. Uh, but I, I did it as a dirty joke. Um, somewhere involving, I believe the, the punchline was something about monkey sperm. Um, you know, but in a classy way, classy, monkey which was the style at the time, which was the style of the time, sir. Yes, exactly. Um, so Bob and I kept in touch. And, uh, you know, Bob liked Frumpy the Clown plenty. Um, and it was actually Bob who then just said, you should try and do a story. Why don't you do a story? So I did, I did a short story, which he loved, and then published an Oni double feature. Um, it was just called Road Trip, which was just about – it was a story about, like, uh, two, uh, two, two kids in their 20s who had to drive across country to identify their brother's body. 
Um, he was killed in a car accident. And it was just like a little, like kind of a little two hander. Um, and, uh, and I got nominated for an Eisner. Um, and the, you know, that was, <laughs> that was, that was very encouraging. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Oh no, you couldn't find anyone more like, you know, like, Oh, that wasn't so hard. Just first story <laughs> nominated for an Eisner. I mean, no, I guess I'll have a shelf full in a couple of years. No problem. Um, but being full of gumption like that was, uh, was helpful. And, um, not long after that is when I, I, I actually did a manuscript of, uh, Pedro May and I sent it, Bob was one of the first people I sent it to. Um, and it was Bob who actually gave me like the courage, like, you know, to, to like go out with it. Cause Bob said, okay, for starters, like we'll publish this if you don't get a real publisher, but go look for a real publisher first. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean real publisher? Cause a book publisher. So we publish comics and we could publish this 200 page graphic novel for you. But if you can actually find a mainstream publisher who wants to do this, you should do that. But if, if that doesn't come through, I will absolutely 100% publish this. So the, we are your fallback position. So go ahead. Um, and he's always been, you know, the expression is, you know, people have their rabbis. So Bob Shrek has always been my rabbi. Right down to he didn't pressure me that we're going to publish this and don't go anyplace else. It was the opposite. He told me we will publish this. So go look for somebody who's a bigger fish than we are. And it was it was the first of many menschy things he would do. I, I <laughs> interviewed him once, and uh, kind of as I was getting ready for that, I, I realized like, what a, a, a nexus of the comic book world that I knew best he was, uh, you know, in terms of bringing all these people into the industry who, you know, were did a lot of things like through the 2000s and and you know working with with obviously working with frank miller and and all that stuff and uh it's kind of it's kind of amazing like more i i feel like more people should know about him now still i agree there's a there's a there's a laundry list of people who um are some of the giants of the industry you know like the pillars of the industry yeah like Frank Miller and Matt Wagner and, um, you know, and, and, and guys like Paul Pope and, uh, you know, and then there's knuckleheads like me and Brad Meltzer who, you know, Brad got into, into comics cause you know, Shrek called me and said like, after Kevin Smith finishes up his green arrow run, I want you to write it, but they're going to eat you alive. <laughs> he said, I think, I think we need someone to write it in between. And I'd, I'd like it to be someone who comes from outside the industry. He actually said, he actually called it mystery meat. I want, I want another, I want another mystery meat like Kevin. And he was a big fan of Brad's novels. And he said, Brad reads comics, right? It's like, yeah. He said, do you think he'd want to read Green Arrow? And I said, Bob, I think there's nothing else in the world he'd rather do <laughs> than, than write Green Arrow. I think he's been waiting his whole life for someone to ask that. So, yeah, you know, get on it. Um, so, yeah, Shrek. Um, Shrek is always taking care of me. I mean, it, that was when he, when he left Oni and went to DC Comics. He was there a year, and he called me to, to basically give me the business. He said, uh, delightfully, again, Bob said – Everybody I've ever worked with has called me to like get work over here, and you haven't called me. Do you not like superhero comics? Like, no, I love it. He said, I said, would you? Because I said, I just, I don't want to ask. I mean, are you serious? He goes, 
yeah, like you should like what you know, and that's when we start talking like the I you know open the door to like, no, of course, I would love to do something. And then, like three weeks later, he said, "Yeah, Ron Mars wants to leave Green Lantern. Do you want to take over?" It's like I I I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> he goes, "I know you haven't written superhero comics before, but he's like you. He goes, but I know you can write and you'll be great. And just do it. Just go ahead and do it. And just start writing the scripts and uh, and we'll take it from there. And." Because Bob had all that faith in me, then Mike Carlin had faith in me because he had faith in Bob. And Bob just handed in the scripts, and Mike Carlin, who was editor-in-chief at the time, said, yeah, this is good. Like, good. Keep at it. You know? And I was about six or seven issues in, and Carlin said, yeah, no, he's the regular guy. So there. Uh, you know, and it, again, he had no reason to think I could actually do this except that he just thought I could do this. Um, and that had happened time and time again. At what you know? point did you think you could do it? Um, I'll let you know. But um, um, <laughs> I, I well, I do mean that you know, like that's a different animal. That's that's oh, monthly. I, you're not drawing it anymore. You're you're writing a script for somebody else. You're doing a thing. Like was that a was that a steep learning curve for you? Um, yes and no. It's it's a lot. I mean, it, okay, a couple of things. One, um, my whole life I've always I've always learned by doing. Um, I've I've uh, I was my parents had instilled in me a ridiculous amount of confidence in work. I was self-conscious about everything else in my life and they were probably responsible for that. But <laughs> when it came to work, it was always, uh, they never thought me being a cartoonist was a crazy idea. Quite the opposite. They always thought I could, I would be able to make a living doing and be successful at it and be important. You know, all these things were drilled into me. So the idea of like just jumping into the water feet first, uh, I was never scared about that because you know, the worst thing that was going to happen is they weren't going to let me do it anymore. Now that I was never, I never had a fear of failure in that way. Um, it just, it, again, it's, it's just about having like great people bring me up and you know, when you fail, you'll fail. I mean, no one, someone else, let someone else tell you that you just try to do, do it as do the best work you can. So with that, I, you know, I, I wrote the shit out of the first several issues, you know, doing the very, very, very best I can. I had read comic books my whole life. I had never, ever called myself a writer. I'd always called myself a cartoonist. I had never really written long form, ever. Um, and so with this, it was just about, you know, Bob sent me this, sent me a couple of scripts because that's the format, do it like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I just, I followed the format and I did it like that and sent it to him, I go like that. He goes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that, that's good. He had notes. Mm -hmm. He said like, this is a little too chatty. That's not chatty enough. No, let's leave that right there. And he's, and I go, what you, you like? He goes, I don't know if I like it or I don't. I don't, I just, I let, let's see, uh, let's see what Daryl does. Let's, let's just, let's play with it a little bit. You know, in the sense of a lot of times Bob doesn't over edit people. When you talk to people about Bob Shrek, he will sometimes let writers kind of find their way. He doesn't micromanage. He doesn't do a line edit. He will have big general thoughts going into it and then let you do your thing. And then maybe have a, a couple of thoughts in here and there or like a moment or, you know, a punch up, some, some body and fender work. But um, a lot of times he, he will let you find your way. I mean, sometimes he won't even agree. Like, you know, Bob will... I mean, he has said this publicly, and I, I give him props for that. He was not on board when I was doing Jason Todd, The Red Hood. He, he, just, he just didn't dig it. <laughs> he, uh, he really, um, when, when we were doing it, when I started doing it, he thought it was more of, um, you know, it was, he said kind of a publicity grab. 
a more of a stunt than actual storytelling. He just couldn't quite get in there. And then the more and and but but he said I'm not but I'm, he said I'm not gonna get in your way. If you really think this this is working, we're, we'll keep doing it. And he kept it was which is funny. He would edit it for story, but the overall idea he wasn't crazy about. And then eventually, like after after many issues, it wasn't right away. After many issues, he just told me he said No, I get it now. <laughs> and I said, What didn't you get before? He said, I just didn't like it before, but now I just like it. He said, it's just working for me now. I just can't, I, whatever rubbed me the wrong way about it initially is gone because I just kind of like where the story's going. He said, so you won me over. I was wrong. And it was just, it was just a pretty amazing thing. And it wasn't something, it wasn't something that happened publicly. It was just me and him. And that's, I think it's a little bit different about how things, things, something's manifested with a lot of, a lot of writers and editors and editorial in general, where they would get into fights with editorial and they just take it publicly immediately. And or, that's or, weird. Yeah, it is weird. I, I couldn't. I never understood that. I mean, basically, I'm saying that Bob and I were really good friends at this point. Like we were really, you know, we are really good friends, and uh, could talk about anything. And we were having a serious disagreement about the work that we are both working on. Um, and Bob could have done anything from telling me that it has to end, don't do this, it doesn't work, put the kibosh on. He could have done any of it, but no, he let me go with a story that he didn't particularly believe in because he knew I believed in it and he believed in me, not the story. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, 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 I wasn't, it was, it was, it was, there was, there was too much heat at the time as far as, um, it was, I mean, it was hard for us to do it until we, like, you know, until he, he came around and also I thought the story started to take, you know, started to come together a little more. Um, they, you know, he, he also saw what I was doing. Um, but, uh, you know, it was difficult. It was difficult. Uh, but, again, th that's what makes him a terrific editor. That's what makes him my rabbi still. Hmm. Um, you know, even at a time that, that he didn't think it was bad writing, he just didn't like it. And he could see the difference. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't know who could do that. I know I, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could separate what is my personal opinion away from the quality of the work um, ever. Um, but he's... He's he's a good editor, and and I in conversations I've had with him since then, it, it wasn't the first time it's happened. He he would tell me other stories, you know. I was like, oh no, I was like this, you know, I didn't agree with this, but he went and did it anyway, and I thought it was garbage. But then he turned it around and did this, so I didn't like the garbage that it came from, but I liked where it ended. It's like wow, you know, and, and I can't tell you, but it's big work. <laughs> it's there's there's big stories of big people that he was talking about. Um, that wasn't working out, but he saw, he, he kind of let them run and said, oh no, but then, then I really saw where the story kind of took shape. He's really, people don't get how editorial can be an art and how it is about both managing the artist and managing the story. And Bob Shrek does that better than anyone else. Sure. So, yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard that before. That's, I think, yeah. and, and I think the work bore it out too. Well, let me ask you, you, um, I mean, you were kind of known for, and there's no way to put this, it doesn't sound stupid, injecting social issues into stuff. Meaning, yeah. you know, you had you had gay characters, you had uh, characters with HIV, you, um, I, I, spe I specifically remember Blood and Water, which was uh, vampires uh, with HIV, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. was that, was that just what was coming out of you? Or was that like, like you felt like you, like, I have to do this because it's important to talk about? And, and... I mean, was that a challenge or was it just that was your story and that's what you were doing? No, I think I think part of it was that how to best put it. I um 
I thought I was always in the position to tell these stories, so I might as well just tell them, and they interest me. Mm-hmm. I thought um, that, um, like, this is my place in the scheme of things. Um, I, 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 I wanted to tell stories like this. I thought that, I, I thought, well, don't forget, I actually thought they always made good stories. I never thought that, um, I thought these were sort of, un, it was kind of untouched areas. These weren't these weren't subjects that were being handled, and I, I thought it'd be interesting to tell them within superhero stories. And and at the time, I thought superhero stories had gotten away from having any social messages at all. Um, and a lot of the social messages were um, being told through metaphor. And mm-hmm. really, I, I I consciously thought, I really did. I consciously thought we have someone here over here telling a story about racism through just you know having aliens come from another planet which is nice but you know whatever it's 2000 it's 2001 it's 2002 why don't we have people of color in here and gay people and actually deal with the issues <laughs> like i don't think we need the metaphor anymore let's let's actually i think i think we as a culture are mature enough that we can just like let's just fucking tell the story this way with the actual characters and have the actual characters be gay you know, or black or Asian or Latino, like, let's just have people in here just really doing it. Um, that's a lot where it sprang from is that I, I thought we could actually tell the stories without the metaphors anymore that with, you know, with characters that are blue and green and coming from different dimensions and, you know, and, and being creatures, which like have no sex, meaning like no gender, maybe we can have some gay people in here and some black people and like, you know, and, and actually have these as issues. Um, now in, in hindsight and well, maybe not even in hindsight, I was also conscious of the fact that it was sort of like forced diversity. Mm-hmm. These characters weren't just characters being, I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you introduce a gay character and their sexuality is not part of the story, you get tagged for just like placing them in there and the, like in the background, like, you know, all oh, you want credit for putting gay characters in there, but you're not even discussing, you know, their gayness, their sexuality. They're just in there. Um, you know, or going the other way that the story is all about their sexuality and you get tagged for that. You know, yeah, there could be there. There is probably a happy middle ground. But at the time, uh, I felt like going with the sledgehammer approach rather than the slow, subtle approach. Um, th- that said, in our defense, when we introduced uh, when we introduced a character in Green Lantern, his name is Terry Berg. We introduced this kid. He was a teenager who would later come out as gay, but he was around for, I don't know, like 10 issues before we ever got around to, you know, having him come out of the closet. So, and then again, that was Bob's idea. Bob's idea was like, no, we're not going to do some after school special where a kid shows up, he's troubled, we find out he's gay and he goes away. Let's introduce a character, have him exist within our universe, have him be there for a while, and then have him come to terms with his sexuality. And like that was all like Bob's terrific idea. It's like, yes, okay, yeah, I'm down. Let's do that. Um, I didn't only remember like the issue where he came out, as well as the issue where he was the victim, you know, the survivor of, of hate crime. Rather than you know, he's around a year and change before we ever got there. Um, but in that sense, it, it wasn't too subtle. And to, to get back to your point, yeah, I just I. I thought these were these are stories that interested me, and I I felt like I could go there, so I, I wanted to. Did that feel like a big deal at the time? I'm, I'm trying to remember because we I feel like we've been I feel like we've not maybe made as much progress 
uh, as we should have at this point. And I'm I'm trying to remember. <laughs> that was that was a very political way of saying that, wasn't it? No, no. I I just say what you're saying is like like yeah. In hindsight, it feels like a big deal because maybe we haven't come so far as that it still feels like a big deal. Well, it, it? and it does still still feel like a big deal whenever it happens, and I don't know why. I don't yeah. know why we haven't gotten used to it. And I can specifically remember that was well, uh, 2001-ish or so. You know, like, yeah. I was working, I was in Los Angeles at the time, and, like, I worked with all gay men. So I thought, well, that's not weird. Like, that's right. that's just right. what they are. But, you know, the comics is weirdly very progressive and then very not at the same time. And I feel like we're still having this same conversation, um, yeah. which is disheartening. There's well, a lot of disheartening, it- but... Some of it is is the, I think I think uh, I, I I think the, the the walls we keep running up into or the or the lack of progress, um, I think the lack of progress feels more like a lack of progress because of the nature of our most vocal readers, and I'll I'll expand on that. Um, I'm following you. Yeah, I mean just just I mean going way back you know, to the dark ages of, you know, the 2000s, uh, when this first started, you know, we, when we had, I mean, when I, when I was, when I was on the real world, we had these things called bulletin boards <laughs> where people would write things about the show and whatnot. And I would go on there and talk with people. And this is before we were calling people haters or trolls, you know, bulletin boards gave way to message boards. And so in the 2000s, it was all about message boards. Yeah. And I don't even know if anyone was blogging yet. I don't even know. Um, but the fact that we did a story involving a gay character, a kid coming out, and then later who was going to be the survivor of a hate crime, um, that, was, that was bad for the hardcore fan. They didn't like that because they don't want those kind of social issues in their comics. No, I'm not homophobic. I just don't want that in my comics. Heard that a lot. Um, and also coupled with the fact that we got a lot of attention. It got mainstream press. And I always noticed that comic fans always bristled against mainstream press. I mean, I remember years after that, uh, the New York Times did a story about diversity in comics. Just that, that they're, they're trying to make more diversity in comics. There was when Batwoman was a character, and they pointed out that, you know, Jon Stewart was a Green Lantern again, and, you know, introducing more characters. DC Comics thinks they're teaching me how to be diverse. Like, that's not what they're doing. <laughs> and it's like, what are you so pissed about? I can't even understand it. And I think there was always an, an attitude that went with when a story became mainstream, it's not the, you know, we don't, you know, we don't need them to tell us how to read our comics. Um, you know, coupled with, um, coupled with homophobia and some racism, you know, which is, which is still out there. I mean, people get bananas when characters are maybe reintroduced and they decide, yeah, we're gonna make this character a person of color. How dare you? It's like, I know, but you know what? This character was created in the 1950s and every character created back then was a white male. So, <laughs> well, yeah, we're looking at this C-level character, and we think this C-level character it would be all right if it was an Asian guy, okay? <laughs> Did you think that you were going to turn into, like, that would be your thing, that you'd turn into that guy who does that? Or did, I mean, did you see that coming, I guess? And I, I don't mean that that was the extent of your work, but I mean to a certain extent of fandom, like, that was the story. Um... I, I knew at some point that um, during sort of the, the height of the, you know, I would joke to friends for a couple of years, like there's a three or four year period that if you Googled 
or maybe in Yahoo, Judd Winnick sucks. You know, you get 10,000 hits. I mean, you know, you get a, a, a fair number, a huge number of people who would be writing about how my work sucks. And a lot of it was that all I ever do is write about social issues. That's a nice way of saying it. But the other way is all I ever do is like get on a soapbox. You know, it's like how long before he makes Batman gay? I mean, I heard that like a million times, um, you know, and and it I don't. But I don't really think I was that frustrated with it. I was never happy to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because they knew, like, yeah, it wasn't true. I've done, like, five of these stories. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I've written hundreds of comics. Yeah. And there's been about five or six, you know, issues that were, like, really pointed social issues. And, like, what are we grouching about? Are we, are we grousing about that I've introduced, like, Grace? She's a seven-foot-tall woman who happens to be Asian. Do we have trouble with that? Or that I brought in a new character, you know, okay, Thunder into The Outsider. She's she's Black Lightning's daughter. What is our, our issue here? Like that all of us, like all the other issues, I mean, it's like, yeah, are you getting pissed because I make more women characters or black people or what? what is it? And it's just, it all becomes one thing. Like that's all he does. Um, so it was, it was, it was fairly chronic um, for a very long period of time, but that part never bothered me. I think it, it, people telling me that the writing sucked would probably bother me more than anything else. But again, I started doing this. Or I, my, my first superhero comic, I think, came out in 2000. Um, and that was Green Lantern, who were notoriously the most virulent, angry fans around, um, who hated everything I did. Um, so that's where I started. Can I tell uh, you Can I tell you, I'm sorry, can I tell you an embarrassing story about that? Please do. Shoot. Okay. I, I hope you don't remember this. Um, in 2000, I think it was, I went to the uh, San Diego Comic-Con for the first time ever. Um, and I was ostensibly there because my boss, who worked in TV at the time, wanted he had this terrible script, and he wanted me to find people to make a comic book out of it. <laughs> and so my job was to go talk to comic creators, get their contact information, and, and, and nothing ever came of it. Right. Okay. You yeah. were one of the people who I talked to, um, and I and you sent me Pedro and me, um, based on that, because um, you know guys try to get work, whatever. My guy, I thought it was a real thing too, but it, whatever. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. End of this conversation. I said, I'll back up. I have, when I was about uh, twenty one, I got a Green Lantern tattoo on my arm. Ah. <laughs> it's just, it's just the symbol. It's just on my right. shoulder. It's pretty innocuous. I'm not saying I would do it now. It's not. It's not a choice that the 40 year old Josh would make. But right, it's, right. But it's there. But it was a little new, and you were just announced as like starting Green Lantern, and I said, and I was talking, I was chatting, and I said something to you effect of like, "We better do a good job." And then I showed you my shoulder, and just describing it to you right now makes me embarrassed <laughs> because your the look on your face is like, "Oh, I don't know what to do with that." <laughs> Was it really? Because I, I mostly think that it probably hit me as like hardcore fan. All right, all right. Yeah. If you read anything on my face, it might have been. I was a little bit nervous about it. Sure. I was a little bit nervous about it because I, I, at that convention, um, I actually had. I mean, it was it was rare this ever happened face to face. That might have been. You were nice about it. I had heard from some people telling me to my face. Just that. Um, do you think you're really, you know, capable of writing Green Lantern? I mean, shouldn't you start off on, literally, shouldn't you start off on a lesser title? 
<laughs> and, and you know that that's me adding whatever my own angst. I just I remember it and go better be good. And then oh god, that was. I still think of it. It gives me chills to this day. But I, I, I gotta be honest with you. I think I probably laughed. I think yeah. I probably you know because I I did have a parade of guys telling me. Um, Warning me. No, like saying that I don't think you necessarily have earned the right to write Green Lantern. Well, I, I mean, I will talk to Ron Mars today and he's still getting hassled about it. So, yes. I mean, that's a yes. that's a weird fan base. No, they're really they're really strange and and hardcore. And I mean, they, they just lo- I mean, it, it comes back to they just love it so damn much that they've never gotten over uh, him turning Hal into Parallax, even though. <laughs> Even though Jeff wrote it, wrote the way out of it, that like no, it was okay. That wasn't really hell. It was it was all okay, you know. Uh, so they still haven't forgiven him for just even even doing it. Yeah, that's amazing, and it's been so long. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been tw- yeah, it's been twenty years. Yeah, right? Over yeah, over twenty years at this point, and like he's still dealing with members of Heat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's. I guess he's just gonna have to wait for them all to die out. I suppose so. He's <laughs> just gonna have to outlast them. Now, there, I know that there's a lot of uh, mainstream comic work that came after that, and I, I literally could talk to you about it for the whole thing. But I want to make sure I get to uh, Hilo. So sure. I guess just to sort of. So what happens at the at the end of you know you're at the end of Catwoman and Batwing, and you decide to to step away. Well, I just or did you um, decide? I don't mean to put it that way, or, or what? But you know. Oh no, I did. I did. I wasn't. I um. No, I I, I wasn't. I wasn't fired, and uh, I wasn't having a bad time with it. Um, like a number of people were like very, very. Yeah, it was. It was a rough time over at DC. There was a. I, I know a lot of folks were having trouble getting scripts kicked back and and outlines kicked back, and they were really bumping heads with editorial. And um, I also was bumping heads with editorial, but not. I didn't really see it as bumping heads so much as just getting notes. And I just, I, um, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was a little more used to it. And I knew everyone involved a little more. I was okay with all that. That was fine. We were working. Um, but I think the only but was that, uh, to tell this story briefly, and I've told it before, is just um, at some point, uh, I guess, uh, about four years ago, uh, my, I, you know, I've, I've been writing superhero comics for about 11 years. And my son... Uh, who was seven at the time, asked me if he was starting to take an interest and wanted to read some of my superhero comics. And he was seven. And he particularly wanted to read my Batman comics. And I had to tell him no. <laughs> because uh, I'm having this issue with my nearly seven-year-old. Yeah, there you go. They're made for teenagers and older kids. And that's what I had to tell him. It's like, you know, and that's, that is the honest to God truth. Um, They're made and for 35-year-old men. <laughs> kind of, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if I did the math, I'm thinking, like, could a 16 year old read this? Like, yeah, yeah. Actually, like a fifth, like even a 13 year old could read a lot of this stuff. It was, you know, um, and it isn't so much that it is pretty violent, but I, for me, it was all more just like sort of the intensity of the subject matter. Just like, you know, Batman's pretty intense, and the Red Hood is as as a story arc is pretty intense, and I just it was too much for him. So. I said, we're going to find you, and he, but he just really wanted to read comic books. He didn't want to read comic strip collections. He wanted to read comic books. And I gave him some of the older stuff, but um, it just it wasn't working for him because you know, the older comics are, are just too dense. Mm-hmm. There's too many panels. There's too many words. And I guess you had to grow up on them more to really get it. And he just wasn't into it. He just wasn't invested. So I got him Bone. I got him Jeff Smith's Bone. And he went bananas. He loved it. Loved it. And uh, Jeff's a friend of mine. I told my 
I told Jeff that my son went bananas for bone, and Jeff sent us two gigantic boxes of merchandise. <laughs> it was so it was it was, and a lot of the stuff wasn't even like being made anymore. It was completely you know like whatever whatever out of print is for for action figures mm-hmm. because he sent us all the bone action figures, and there was T-shirts and posters and hats, and my son became a bone super fan. Uh, he just loved it. He had all this stuff. And I actually got jealous. <laughs> I, I actually, it actually really stirred something in me that my son just loved bones so much. I just thought, I got to be, I'm a cartoonist. I got to be able to do something that he loves him as much as this. I, I, I should be doing this. And that's when the idea like really took hold. And uh, I took one crack at making like sort of a half-assed presentation which which was was not high low. It was like a totally different thing, and uh, I showed it to a couple of people, and they basically were coming back that they wanted to see like more. Like this is really isn't enough to get a book deal. You need more. Like oh screw it. So I took a year and just did it on spec, and not unlike doing Pedro on me and coming out the other side and realizing I didn't want to do comic strips anymore. On the other side, after I finished doing high low, I was like, yeah, you know what. I don't think I want to do superhero comics anymore. And I, I think I should stop now while I still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I left when I, I still like doing them. You know, it, you know, was I as crazed and passionate and, and out of my mind as like the, the height of when I was doing it? No. Some of the bloom was off the rose, but I wasn't anywhere near the bottom. I wasn't anywhere near burnt out. You know, and I know I could still go back and do them. You know, I, I still have there's still a lot there. Uh, so I left where I was still pretty happy with doing them. Uh, but I knew that I knew writing and drawing made me so much happier than than sitting down and writing a comic book script and final draft. I just knew it just gave me such infinite pleasure um, that like, oh, no, it, it, it basically took me back. Just as I said, like at the top of our conversation, um, I, I realized that, uh, you know, like, oh, no, this is what I was always supposed to do. Right. Kind of where I started, you know, making things up and drawing them. Um, and, you know, and that's how it happened. Um, you know, when I finished, I hadn't, I, I didn't have a deal yet. You know, I hadn't even, I hadn't even shown it to my agent yet, my literary agent. Um, you know, I, I just knew that like, yeah, you know, even after do a Kickstarter of this, this is what I want to do. So where did it, where did, where did Hilo come from then? Well, it's, I wanted to do, um, I wanted to do a serialized story. I knew that mm-hmm. I wanted to do kind of a superhero story in disguise. Basically, like I, I didn't want them like running around in costume. I didn't want it to be sort of. I, I wanted it to be kind of less obvious, more so because I knew mainstream publishers um, kind of shy away from just superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to, and just that a superhero, you know, a superhero comic in disguise. And you can tell because you know our our hero has his he has his costume yep. that he wears all the time. You know, as do his friends. Everyone wears the same outfit every time, and it's you know you're forgiving of it because it's sort of a cartoon trope. That then you know you never change clothes, um, but it was just that I felt like I oh, I want to do a superhero story. I want to do kids again, like I did with Barry Ween, but just without the cursing, and um, taking a lot of the stuff that I loved, um, everything from Iron Giant to ET to Doctor Who. Like Doctor Who was a huge influence on Barry Ween. I mean, if you look at it from that perspective. If, if you know Doctor Who and then look at it like, yeah, like Hilo and the Doctor are these positive protagonists who are always excited about anything new, even if it's going to kill them. And then they, they happen upon, you know, quote unquote, regular people who come along for the adventure and actually are just as much a hero as they are. 
And uh, I like that idea. And, you know, sort of like borrowing kind of the emotional, you know, context of Doctor Who without like sort of actually ripping off the story. You know, it's the idea this wizard shows up, this magical creature, this superpowered being shows up and he takes you on an adventure. Um, and then it was built out of that. I mean, and really sort of actually built on like, like Hilo kind of took care of himself when I had him figured that he didn't, he had no memory and everything was awesome. <laughs> everything was outstanding. <laughs> like, that's great. Oh man, that's awesome. You but, like a character who thinks everything is awesome. Yeah. You know what? And it turns out kids love that too. They really, they like the idea about how everything is exciting for him. Um, and, you know, and also they sort of empathize with, with DJ. So things just kind of fell into place like that. You know, when I, I thought I'd make this big ongoing series, I'd make 20 books. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to wind up being six because my editor, who's brilliant, my editor, Shana Corey, um, you know, po- talked me down without knowing that I was being talked down. Meaning that like, so like we had a three book deal. That was like how we were going to start, like, you know, three books initially and we'll see how it goes. And um, so, so how many books do you want to think you want to do of Hilo? And I said, I don't know. I was thinking like 20, just 20. Okay. That's, that is pretty ambitious. So let's, uh, well, well, let me, let me tell you this, that you're doing this ongoing mystery and we don't know who Hilo is and where he's from or anything. And you're going to slowly roll out this mystery. I got to tell you, I think I want to know the ending a lot sooner than 20 books. I actually kind of even want to know more in this first book. And she actually made me go back and I, I rewrote the first book. So to kind of give up the store a little bit and like expand on the mystery even more in the first book. The flashbacky bits? But, yeah, like a lot. Like I had some of that, but they were even more subtle. And she's, she pushed me to, to expand on it. But then she also followed up by that, you know, one, she, she as a reader wanted to, to know the mystery and the answers faster. Than Instead of 10 books. years from now? That 20? was... That was her point. She actually pointed out that so at the rate you're going, which is I figure you could do about a book a year, um, you know, a 10-year-old reading this would get to the last book when they're 30. And that <laughs> that feels like a, a longer run than you kind of want to. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, that's right. So, so you get like, yeah, no, let me go. Let me go rethink it. I think I was thinking of it like comic books. Yeah, yeah, I was, think- I was getting there. Yeah, and I was thinking about also like serialized television mm-hmm. that, you know, in my mind, like, oh, no, I'm going to do 20 episodes. I think you were so, thinking about how many bone books there were. Possibly. <laughs> and I think, were, were there nine? Um, so, is, I don't know. I only have the one big thing, so I don't, I don't know how many there were. There were a lot, but. I think they were broken up like, like, like no, they weren't, I mean, there weren't 20. It was like nine when they were like all told. I mean, his, he spent 10 years yeah. and wound up with like, you know whatever it is, eight or nine trades. Um, and then they, you know, Scholastic put them out in color. Those are the ones my kid read. Um, but she was right. And she made me go back to work there and, and basically come back. She said, come back with a, with a number that you think tells the whole story. And I broke it all down because I knew where the story was going to end. And I knew that, you know, I had a couple of the books figured out, but like, and this will happen and that'll happen there. And we'll end here. And I said, yeah, I think six. I think when I broke it down, it's like, I think it's, I think it's going to be six. And, um, and that's what we came back with. And that's what I've been working towards. And it's, uh, and for me, storytelling wise, it's worked out really well. I really, um, I know, I know where we're going. I know how it's going to land. And that's been everything sort of, you know, playing to an ending has been a lot of fun. How's it different working on these than it had been working on like monthly comics? Um, some things are very much, well, some things are very much the same as far as just, the general, you know, storytelling of it all, 
the you know the 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 nuts and bolts of putting the story together and putting together dialogue and characters and 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 you know and how they interact and whatnot. It's a lot of the ways those are the same muscles, except now you're given license to do just anything. You know the 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 real the real challenge in doing superhero comics is that you only get to take the characters from from A to B. Um, they they can you know that and that's the area of real estate they're ever going to occupy. Like Batman's never going to grow old. He's never going to you know he's never going to die. He's never going to do this. He's never going to do that. There's so many things that you can't do because the character is going to be passed on to somebody else in a couple of years, and he always has to pretty much be stuck in amber. Like this is where he's going to be, and this is how it is for mo- for all the characters. So, given the opportunity to have a character evolve, change, and play to an ending, was you know everything. Uh, you know that that's big, and for me also, like these are my characters. I'm allowed to do whatever that I want with them, and um, you know, and the fact that I'm drawing them, you know, it's 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 like a different thing. It's gonna. I knew I knew it was gonna be funnier. I mean, for for whatever Hilo might be. I always make sure that it's funny. You know, I want to make ha- have lots of jokes that are good for grown-ups as well as kids. Um, I mean, that's kind of where I started. I mean, I, I really, man, right right before I was leaving uh, uh, DC, I remember reading online. It might have even been a review or something. That was, I think they might have been talking about Power Girl mm-hmm. uh, or something. And some and the 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 review had said that the book is really funny. You know, which is interesting because Judd Winnick's not known for comedy. <laughs> and it made me think like, oh, holy shit, he's right. <laughs> it's, it's like they, people don't know that actually. I mean, I've, I've always thought of myself as like a comedy writer first. You know, they make jokes. Um, but doing superhero comics for as long as I did and as earnest and gritty as I did, um, people forgot that, you know, I think first and foremost, I like I like being funny. I like, you know, I like I like the, you know, Having more than a joke or two, not just, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, several jokes per page. Let's have some fun as well as tell a nice story. So um, that's what makes it fun, too. You know, when you're doing superhero comics, they can just by the very nature of them, they're only going to be so funny. Yeah, they're just they're just not that way. Yeah. Humor in superhero comics is strange. Like you can fit it in there, but a really good, funny superhero series is kind of rare. Yeah. And I, I think I mean. The perfect way to look at it, like you know, and I think it's 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 forgive me because it's a criticism. The very big difference between the DC movies and the Marvel movies is humor. Mm-hmm. You know, Marvel manages like they're not comedies, no. but they manage to make they have a little air in there. It's a little bit of levity. There's little jokes, and the jokes are naturalistic. You know, look at Joss Whedon's Avengers. It's very funny, but it's still life and death. No one says these are comedies, and I don't think anyone – I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people are complaining that it's too light. I don't see it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is very funny, you know, but it's also about, you know, murdering the undead, and they take that very seriously. Um, so I think serious stories can be told with a lot of, like, you know, a lot of humor. Yeah. Then they should. Well, I think – that that's about all that I've got. I could, I mean, I could go on. I, I didn't even talk about you working in TV, which is also fascinating. It's going to happen at the same time as this. But maybe I'll just leave that for another time. I don't know. We, we don't have to make this the last conversation we ever have, sir. Well, that would be, be just <laughs> fine. That would be good. Let me ask you one other question because yeah. you, uh, my kids, I have an yes. almost seven-year-old and an almost three-year-old, and they have nice. both gone through pretty good high-low periods. Nice. My my two year old obviously could not read it, but there was like a week or two where he kept picking it up and going in the other room and sitting in a chair, and you'd see him with it in front of his face, you know, like an old man reading a newspaper. 
for 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 like for like a week or two, and he was just completely obsessed with it for a while. And I'm oh, gonna I'm gonna get him awesome. the, the next couple volumes coming up. But um, thank that, you. That's, that's a really big deal to me. That's like food. That's like thank you. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> it's like the greatest thing in the whole world. Thank you. That's yeah, awesome. That's really fun. So, what other have you found any other books like that uh, that you've gotten for your kid? Because you can't just give your kid your own book. So, are there other good kids comics that you know about that you like? Yeah, no, I think, and, uh, you know, um, they're out there, and they're out there more and more. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the action adventure stuff is becoming, you know, it's coming out there, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're catching that bug a little bit more. I mean, as we talked about, like, Bone, I think is terrific. Um, I, uh, uh, I mean, uh, on the sort of, like, non-superhero genre, I, you know, I really love everything Raina Sagelmeyer's ever done, mm-hmm. um, and it's great, and, uh, I often hear from people like, yeah, it's more of a girl thing. Like, no, it's really not. It's cartoons. And trust me, give it to your kids. Like, my son loved it as much as my daughter did. Now, I won't lie to you. My daughter reads them over and over again. Uh, and my son has read them a couple of times and, you know, has moved on to other stuff. But I, any of Raina Tagelmeyer's stuff is terrific. Um, I really love Amulet. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you probably don't even know. Um, you know, Kazu Kabushi does this really terrific series, Amulet. Um, Amulet. Amulet's actually not full of laughs. It's pretty, um, it's pretty serious. It's pretty, well, serious is the wrong word. It's intense in a good way. It's not like, it, it, and it's not scary. It's like probably like Harry Potter level scary, but it's good and it's an ongoing story. And I think that makes it a lot of fun. You know, we really dig that. Um, like Zeta, the space girl, that's another really good one. Um, and, well, and don't forget comic strips. I mean, I think um, I was really happily stunned when my kids not only loved Calvin and Hobbes, <laughs> um, which is like just a gimme, and they love Peanuts, which is another just kind of gimme. But um, I, uh, I dragged out all I, – like I have all of the For Better or For Worse collection, <laughs> which is – what's interesting about For Better or For Worse, and it was rarely ever done – is that she had the character's age in her comic strip. They got older. So I gave my kids basically the books and told them, like, these kind of go in order. If you read them in order, you'll see that that the little boy in the comic eventually gets a little bit older. Then he has a little sister when she's a baby, and the baby becomes a toddler. It's like they get older. They kind of grow up, so it becomes like an ongoing story. And just with that little little bit of pimping, my kids – started going through for better, for worse and reading them. And it's, it's a comic strip and it's a great comic strip. And it's so well drawn and it's really interesting. Um, and it's, it's dated in the right kind of way that, um, like the jokes still hold up, but they're all like, they're kind of wonderful gimmies. They're, you know, like, like really just like they're great comic strip jokes and they're really, you know, and they took to it because it's, um, they're, they're easy to read. It's easy to put down and walk away from for weeks at a time. Then you can just pick it right back up. So, Sometimes you'll forget, like serialized comics really uh, ha- have gone away. Um, comic strips, I mean. So uh, you know that is one that um, I, I actually think I actually think your your boy would probably like it pretty soon. Maybe Seven's a little bit too young. Yeah, we're we're waiting on it. But okay, those are good. And and also, you know, people who are listening to you, they 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 ask us this question all the time, and and you're in a position to know. Well, and the last one I would probably mention, it isn't out yet, but um, Chris Eliopoulos, who. Um, is known for like basically two things. He's known as uh, one of the best letterers in the business. Um, if you've read a comic book ever, um, you have you have read uh, a Chris Eliopoulos comic. Uh, you know one that he one he, that he has lettered, and uh, he has a graphic novel coming out 
Um, guys, are coming out in March. Um, March or May? I'm not sure on. when. Let, let me look. Uh, I do know okay. that if, my yeah. son spotted Hilo in uh, one of the Extraordinary People books. Oh, there you and go. And I was like, so... <laughs> So here's why that's there. And then he was like, I don't care. And I was like, yeah, but I, I mean, I know that guy. And <laughs> that is the other thing Chris is known for. Chris is known yeah. for. Do he, so he, he uh, illustrates Brad Meltzer's, um, you know, Extraordinary People series, the I Am series, as we call it. Um, well, now he's, uh, he's got a, he's got a, I mean, I've read it. He's got a, it, it's a graphic novel. It's called Cosmic Commandos. I'm looking it up now. July. Okay, so it comes out in July. I highly recommend this. To any fan of Hilo, I highly recommend this. He's totally working the same side of the street. We are very much – Chris and I bond over the fact about how we have the same uh, mentors who we've never met. You know, We worship at the, at the altar of Charles Schultz and, and, uh, and Bill Watterson. That's what we draw like. That's what we aspire to draw like. So – you know, it's he's he's got you know, and it's what's great about it is that everything that one might like about the I Am series, as far as the art, you get to see tenfold in this because the, they just get to move around more and yell and jump and blow things up and fly through the sky, and it's just it's great and really funny. That's that's another one. July, so awesome. So get to your local comic book store, or more importantly, your local bookstore. Actually, it's it's a book book, you know, through <laughs> put out by by a publisher. Uh, <laughs> um, and and well worth it. Um, Listen, kids, and- kids don't care about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> true enough. That's All true. right. Well, thanks so much for talking to me and and, and taking the time. And uh, this this was a, this was a talk a little long in the making, and I'm I'm glad it finally happened. Uh, same here, buddy. No, it was really good talking to you. It's been a it's been a very long time, and uh, and let's do it again. Cool. We shouldn't, like we shouldn't wait years in between. We should do it more often than this. You got it. Cool. And that is going to do it for this episode of Talk Split. I want to thank Judd Winnick, whose work I have enjoyed for many years, and I had an equally fun conversation with him. If you want to check out more of his work, go to juddspillowfort.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at Judd Winnick. That's one N in Winnick, which I have trouble with. I'll admit that. Also, get over to ifanboy.com to comment on this show and other stuff we've got going on to check things out. And again, uh, if you like to support what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash ifanboy. It was the Patreon goals which led to us bringing back these interview shows. And we thank everyone who did that, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.